Welcome to the Tim Talks Politics Podcast, a conversation on government, citizenship, and America's place in the world. I'm your host, Tim Malash. Let's talk some politics. Hello, and welcome back to the Tim Talks Politics Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I'm excited to be back. Uh, for those of you joining us for the first time, uh, this might be the first time you're listening to me, in which case, welcome. For those of you who've been regular listeners of the podcast, you know that I haven't been showing up in your podcast feeds for a month, and that's because I took July off for some family vacation time and to work on my doctoral dissertation. That is progressing along nicely. The vacation was nice, and now I'm excited to get back and jump into a abbreviated summer uh, series uh, with you on this podcast. So the summer series is going to be a reading series like the last couple of summer series have been. Uh, For those of you who are new to the podcast, let me explain what we do a little bit in the summer series. The summer series, I select uh, key documents in political history, specifically American political history, and we do a read-through of these documents, and I comment on them and walk you through them. And the reason I chose to do this is because numerous surveys over the last several years have shown that the average American does not read the documents that our uh, government is built on. So for the first couple of series, uh, so two summers ago when I first started doing this, I did the Declaration of Independence and we uh, spent some time reading through and talking about that. Last summer, I did a really enjoyable read-through of the Constitution. The reason I started with those two documents is they're foundational to American government and American political culture. But also, the vast majority of American adults, people who are voting, people who are operating within the political system these documents have constructed, uh, haven't read these documents in full, and those who have haven't done it since maybe the eighth grade. How much do you remember from eighth grade, right? Not that much. So it's really just uh, my attempt to provide uh, listeners with an updated civics education uh, in what does American government do? What is it about? What can it do? What can't it do? And we're going to kind of continue that tradition a little bit here in this uh, more abbreviated summer series. I've picked two documents that are also critical uh, to the operations of American government, but near and dear to my heart, they're critical to the operation of American international relations. We're going to be looking at the charter for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, otherwise known as NATO. And then over the next couple of episodes after that, uh, we'll be looking at the UN Charter. Now, if most Americans haven't read the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, they certainly have not read uh, the NATO Charter or the UN Charter. And surprisingly, both of these are fairly short documents. They can be read fairly quickly, and they're both publicly available on the internet, and I'll be linking to them in the show notes. So that's what we're going to do in this episode. We're going to read through the fairly short NATO Charter. And the reason I decided to do it on these two documents is because with the election of President Joe Biden, uh, one of the big things that Joe Biden really emphasized in his inaugural address, uh, which I spoke about in a prior podcast, I'll link to that in the show notes as well, uh, is he talked a lot about how his election was a win for democracy around the world, how democracy had triumphed, how democracy was this great thing, and how part of the renewal of American democracy was going to be a renewal of America's approach to diplomacy, mostly through uh, reforming and rebuilding alliances and re-engaging with international institutions. And NATO and the United Nations are the two international institutions, or as we call them in the international relations field, uh, inter 
international organizations or IOs, they're the two big ones for America. Uh, they're where we put most of our attention when it comes to multilateral diplomacy. And so it's not just a random choice for me to walk through these two documents with you. It's because they are actually foundational documents to America's post-World War II uh, diplomatic approach to the world. So that's kind of what we're going at. That's what we're looking for. Uh, and one of the big first steps uh, that President Biden took in renewing America's commitment to these institutions was his Europe trip or his first international trip as sitting president earlier this summer. And so that's kind of what's framing this document is that uh, the, pre the president sought to make a concerted effort to renew ties across um, across Europe with NATO allies uh, specifically, and also to renew America's standing in the UN, and also to uh, and also to kind of like take a firmer stance in his first initial meeting with uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin, which happened at the end of his uh, Europe trip. And these two entities really symbolize America's core geopolitical interests, Europe and Russia. And that goes back to the to the Cold War, which was the historical context in which NATO was founded. So let me give you a little background information on NATO. Uh, so NATO was formed in 1949, and so it's a little younger uh, than the United Nations, not by much, but by a few years. And it was founded in 1949 explicitly to check the westward expansion of the Soviet Union. So a little historical background on that. After World War II and the collapse of Nazi Germany, uh, Germany was essentially split in half. Nazi Germany had been caught between invasions from Eastern Europe by uh, the Soviet Union and from Western Europe by America, the United Kingdom, and their other allies. So uh, caught between these two invading forces, Germany collapsed, and with it, uh, Europe was fundamentally divided by between two camps. Now. The Russians had been allied with America and other Western European countries to defeat Nazi Germany, but that didn't that didn't wash away the fundamental differences between these two systems of government and political culture. The Soviet Union was communist; it was uh, anti-capitalist; it was anti-democratic, and uh, deeply mistrustful of Western European countries and the United States. And Western European countries in the United States were deeply mistrustful of the Soviet Union uh, because. For their part, they were Democrat, they were capitalists, and they were confronted with a kind of like an alliance of convenience uh, in their war with Germany that was now over, and that alliance of convenience rapidly fell apart, and thus we started uh, the Cold War with the space race, the nuclear arms race, and all that wonderful stuff. Well, because Europe was so destroyed uh, by World War II, most of the Western European countries uh, did not have the economic or military clout to withstand this westward expansion of communism, specifically communism backed by the Soviet Union. And so Western European countries looked to the United States, uh, which had escaped World War II relatively unscathed, certainly the premier uh, economy and military power in the world, to supplement or support their, uh, or, uh, their economies or their militaries, and thus was born NATO. Now, NATO originally started with uh, America, Canada, and a select few Western European countries. Since then, it's grown and expanded. Current membership of NATO is 30 countries, but they also have 40 
partner countries. Partner countries are different than member countries. Uh, partner countries actually are not necessarily uh, even geographically located in Europe, uh, but they are uh, concerned with uh, global security threats. They want they recognize that NATO is the premier uh, military alliance in the world, and so they want to at least have some level of coordination and command and control coordination with NATO in the event of some kind of military conflict within their own regions and things like that. I'm going to read off for you really quickly a list of the member countries just so you know you know who's part of the club. And so we'll go in alphabetical order. Uh, Albania, Belgium, Bulgaria, Canada, Croatia, Czech Republic, Denmark, Estonia, France, Germany, Greece, Hungary, Iceland, Italy, Latvia, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Montenegro, Netherlands, North Macedonia, Norway, Poland, Portugal, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, Spain, Turkey, United Kingdom, and of course the United States. Now, you'll note right away among all these member countries is that they are vastly different in size, but most uh, importantly, they are largely within uh, Europe, uh, with the exception of the United States and uh, Canada. So the focus strategically, geopolitically of NATO has always been the European continent, specifically with an eye toward turn towards the security problem, you might say, posed by Russia, first the Soviet Union, now Russia, which of course makes NATO a general sticking point or friction point between America and Russia even down to today. In fact, a major sticking point between America and Russia and their relationships has been the enlargement of NATO to include countries like Poland or the Czech Republic or Hungary or Romania that had previously been communist countries uh, associated with the Soviet Union. So NATO enlargement in the 1990s has often been looked upon by Russia as a Uh, as a major threat as America kind of taking advantage of Russia's weakness and it continues to be this major uh, friction point for the two countries. So that's a little background on the formation of NATO, why it was formed, who's in it. And so now what we're going to do is we're going to dive into the charter itself. And what I do in these read-throughs is I read every word. Uh, Longer documents, obviously, I won't summarize them, but this is a short document. I'll read through it. I'll give a few uh, I'll give a few comments on different sections of it, and then we'll kind of wrap up with a, a discussion on uh, on what we should take away from having gone through this very short charter. Okay, so here it is: the NATO Charter. The parties to this treaty reaffirm their faith in the purposes and principles of the Charter of the United Nations and their desire to live in peace with all peoples and all governments. So right away you have the NATO Charter recognizing like, hey, we're a military alliance. This makes it look like we're gearing up for war. Well, just so everybody's okay, you know, this is for peace. This is alliance for peace kind of is how they're framing this. They are determined to safeguard the freedom, common heritage, and civilization of their peoples founded on the principles of democracy, individual liberty, and the rule of law. They seek to promote stability and well-being in the North Atlantic area. So this actually lays out the shared values of member countries, and this actually is part of uh, at least the entry process for candidate countries to become members of NATO, is do they in fact support these values? Do they promote democracy in their own countries? Do they value individual liberty and the rule of law in their own countries? We'll get into where that's problematic in just a little bit. The values themselves aren't problematic. The values are great. The question is, what happens to countries that value those things at the point at which they become NATO members, 
but then value them less after they become NATO members? What happens then? Hold that, put a pin in that, hold that question for a minute because we're gonna come back to that. They are resolved to unite their efforts for collective defense and for the preservation of peace and security. They therefore agree to this North Atlantic Treaty. So this is, uh, this is the mission statement of NATO, basically. These countries, the member countries, are going to unite their efforts for, and this is a critical term in international relations and foreign policy scholarship, collective defense. The idea is, is that these alliances are meant for defending the group. They're meant to, uh, they're designed to create an alliance that uh, militarily supports and defends member countries when they're under threat uh, from outside forces. And the objective is, of collective defense, is preserving peace and security. So it's, sta it's meant to stabilize countries as opposed to be a tool for like conquest or something like that. Okay, so that's all preamble. Article one, the parties undertake as set forth in the Charter of the United Nations to settle any international dispute in which they may be involved by peaceful means in such a manner that international peace and security and justice are not endangered and to refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force in any manner inconsistent with the purposes of the United Nations. So one of the things you want to note really quickly here is that NATO from its beginning sees itself as an extension or an affiliated organization with the United Nations. They see the United Nations as kind of like setting the bar, you might say, for international uh, dispute, dispute negotiation, international settling international conflicts and things of that nature. Uh, so NATO is trying to say we're not separate from the from the United Nations. It's not you don't get to do what you want to do in the United Nations, so you come to us to try to get to do what you want to do. That's not the objective of NATO, at least not not according to Article One. That's not the founding objective. The objective of NATO is within the umbrella or under the umbrella within the international system outlined or bracketed by the United Nations and its institutions, NATO functions as a security apparatus for its member countries within the you know international rule book laid out by the United Nations. So they put some limitations on themselves here. They're not an open-ended military alliance. Article two, the parties will contribute toward the further development of peaceful and friendly international relations by strengthening their free institutions, by bringing about a better understanding of the principles upon which these institutions are founded, and by promoting conditions of stability and well-being. They will seek to eliminate conflict in their international economic policies and will encourage economic collaboration between any or all of them. Now, a couple of points here. NATO is focused first on, as we said back up earlier in the preamble, these values of, <clears throat> excuse me, these values of freedom, democracy, individual liberty, rule of law, uh, etc. The focus here is we're going to make sure that these things are uh, well grounded at home. So domestic politics are stable, domestic uh, institutions are free and open. Uh, the idea is that, you know, strong home, strong family, you can present a strong face uh, to external threats, a united front to external threats, you might say. So they're focused on, and, and what's interesting here is this, uh, this focus not just on wanting to build 
um, free institutions within their own borders, but making sure that those free institutions are understood to be free institutions. And so there's there's almost like this educational component here, which um, which is more aspirational than anything. I mean, you don't see like a lot of NATO exchange programs. Uh, you don't see a lot of you know, NATO education or NATO civics uh, curriculum that gets taught in college classrooms or anything like that. Maybe it might be a good idea. I don't know. But it's worth thinking about, right, that there's this rec- there's at least a recognition by NATO that we're only as good as the strength of our institutions. Our values of democracy, individual liberty, rule of law are only as good as how healthy they are within our home countries. Other than if if we can't maintain that, then we're not really going to function very well. Still, it's pretty high level. Article 3. In order more effectively to achieve the objectives of the treaty, the parties separately and jointly by means of continuous and effective self-help and mutual aid will maintain and develop their individual and collective capacity to resist armed attack. So this actually commits these countries to maintaining a sustainable, defensible military posture. So this isn't, uh, if articles one and two can be considered somewhat idealist in terms of what the NATO member countries are trying to get to, what kind of world they would like to see and operate in, article three is a recognition that there's a very real world out there that poses dangers, that you know, it's not all sugar and spice in the world. It, there are hard edges. Uh, to the world and there are threats to the world and we need to make sure that as much as our institutions are free that those institutions can in fact be protected uh, and secured militarily if necessary. Now this gets to something that was a bit of an issue actually has been a long-standing issue uh, in the last 30 years certainly post Cold War uh, in NATO and that is America's continued commitment to maintain a high level of military readiness Uh, and the flagging commitment of member countries within NATO uh, to retain a similar level of military readiness. Uh, Germany is kind of the, probably one of the most um, concerning countries in this respect. There's been a lot of of hand-wringing over the military readiness of the German military, uh, especially since they're kind of like this, uh, they're they're sandwiched right right between Russia and Western Europe, and so they're seen as a major buffer state and everything like that. Uh, but their military is often questionably prepared for uh, resisting arm attack, you might say. Uh, and then, of course, this raises a question about, like, why are there so many small countries in NATO? If small countries are joining NATO uh, ostensibly to be protected by the more powerful member countries, are they capable of defending themselves in the event of an external attack? This is So Article 3 actually becomes something of a a point of tension between different member countries. And that tension, while it's been kind of like on a low burn, slow burn, you might say, low fire, whatever, uh, throughout the post-Cold War time period, it really came to the front uh, in the presidency of Donald Trump, with Donald Trump frequently saying, uh, you know, America's underwriting the defense of Europe. European countries aren't paying their fair share. They need to up their spending to the agreed 2% of GDP needs to be their baseline defense budgets. Now, that 2% of GDP is not necessarily enshrined in this charter. So technically speaking, member countries aren't committed to that. But it's it's kind of more of a rubric that recognizes that you have to put some amount of your 
GDP towards your own defense. And that's the principle, at least, that is indicated in Article 3, if not the exact number. Article 4. The parties will consult together whenever, in the opinion of any of them, the territorial integrity, political independence, or security of any of the parties is threatened. So these kind of form the three criteria on whether or not uh, NATO should utilize its military forces. When does NATO go into action? And we're going to get to Article 5, which is kind of like the keystone of the charter. But, it, you know, Articles 1 through 4 are all setting up Article 5. Article 4 lays out some pretty specific criteria in terms of when a country can appeal to NATO for aid. Is the territorial integrity threatened? In other words, are they losing control of their borders? Uh, is their political independence threatened? Is a, is a outside entity seeking to wrest control of the uh, government from uh, that country? Or is there political security uh, threatened? Now, what's the difference between political independence or security? Well, political independence refers kind of to that concept of sovereignty. You know, is this country, is this country's government able to uh, retain full control of its own country and run its own affairs? Their political security would be more of the, say, the stability of the institutions of, uh, of the country uh, and even the physical safety of the um, political institutions of the country, uh, the lawmakers, the elected officials, the, not just the buildings. So in other words, is your land being threatened? Is your sovereignty being threatened? Is your political system being threatened? Those are the three criteria. Now, you don't have to satisfy all three criteria in order to invoke Article 5. But these three kind of have to be the key things. One of them at least has to be under threat uh, in order for NATO to be invoked or the protection of fellow NATO members to be invoked. And this brings us to Article 5. The parties agree that an armed attack, again, another really specific statement, an armed attack against one or more of them in Europe or North America shall be considered an attack against them all. And consequently, they agree that if such an armed attack occurs, each of them, in exercise of the right of individual or collective self-defense recognized by Article 51 of the Charter of the United Nations, will assist the party or parties so attacked by taking forthwith, individually and in concert with the other parties, such action as it deems necessary, including the use of armed force to restore and maintain the security of the North Atlantic area. Any such armed attack and all measures taken as a result thereof shall immediately be reported to the Security Council, and such measures shall be terminated when the Security Council has taken the measures necessary to restore and maintain the international peace and security. So NATO here is seeing itself as kind of like a first responder in the event of a armed attack against one of its members. Now, if an armed attack occurs, now again, this is remember, the context of NATO is directed at the Soviet Union. So at the time this charter was written, the expectation was the most likely armed attack against a member of Western Europe or the United States was likely to come from the Soviet Union, no, nowhere else. Uh, that has, of course, changed. Russia does not pose that kind of uh, threat anymore, uh, at least not a sizable one. Uh, and the threats have uh, multiplied, you might say. And so we'll get to that in a little bit. But uh, the key point here is, again, note how closely NATO ties its operation to the functioning of the United Nations. Uh, you know, we're going to play by the rules the United Nations lays down governing the use of 
the military and the use of uh, war as a weapon of diplomacy or as a tool of diplomacy, you might say. So that's the first thing. And, and what makes it kind of like a first responder thing is that there's this very specific sequence that's kind of being indicated here. A member gets attacked. NATO moves into consulting with fellow members saying like, hey, this member's been attacked, therefore all of us have been attacked, so what do we do in response? They decide on that response and respond accordingly. And the key objective here, which is kind of interesting, is not just the security of the member, but to retain and maintain the security of the entire North Atlantic area. So there's an immediate move to do two things. To the best degree possible, maintain the security of the member country under attack, but then secondarily, ensure that the whole region covered by this charter, by these members, is similarly secured. And then once you've kind of taken, so there's kind of like still this defensive posture here. This is all about defense. Once these defensive measures have been taken, you kind of refer this matter to the UN Security Council and abide by uh, whatever the Security Council decides is the best approach. So if that means allowing NATO to continue whatever mission it's upon, whether that means letting UN peacekeepers take over stabil uh, stability operations, it really depends. But Article 5 is seen as like, this is what NATO exists for. It exists for the defense of its members uh, against any kind of armed attack. All right, Article 6. For the purpose of Article 5, an armed attack on one or more of the parties is deemed to include an armed attack, so now they're getting more specific in definitions, is deemed to include an armed attack on the territory of any of the parties in Europe or North America, on the Algerian departments of France, on the territory of Turkey, or on the islands under the jurisdiction of any of the parties in the North Atlantic area north of the Tropic of Cancer, on the forces, vessels, or aircraft of any of the parties, when in or over these territories, or any other area in Europe in which occupation forces of any of the parties were stationed on the date when the treaty entered into the force or the Mediterranean Sea or the North Atlantic area north of the Tropic of Cancer. Now they're saying this because at the time, there's still plenty of uh, forces like American forces, uh, British forces that are stationed on continental Europe. Remember, this is 1949. We're only four years past the end of World War II. Uh, we're close to the time when uh, when you see things like the Berlin Wall going up, right, in the late 50s, in the 1950s and stuff. So the Cold War is developing. You still have the world reeling from World War II. You still have the uh, forces, naval, air, and uh, land forces of member countries stationed all over the world. So they're basically saying, okay, there's a very specific geographic region that we're concerned about here in terms of security. But that doesn't mean you can just attack us, our forces wherever they are either. We're still going to take that as an act of war, which is in fairly common, uh, commonly understood uh, in international law, even prior to the UN or NATO, is that if you attack an another country's military anywhere, it's considered an act of war. So they're kind of doing two things here. They're, they're specifying their geographic scope of the mission, but they're also recognizing, or again, kind of like signaling, we're going to abide by agreed upon standards of international law. Article seven, 
This treaty does not affect and shall not be interpreted as affecting in any way the rights and obligations under the Charter of the Parties, which are members of the United Nations, or the primary responsibility of the Security Council for the maintenance of international peace and security. So again, there's this uh, beholdenness to the United Nations. It's basically saying that the NATO Charter is placed uh, under the United Nations in terms of priority and responsibility for uh, member countries. Article 8. Each party declares that none of the international engagements now enforced between it and any other of the parties or any third state is in conflict with the provisions of this treaty and undertakes not to enter into any international agreement in conflict with this treaty. So this now moves from placing limitations on the alliance to placing limitations on member countries. Member countries are not to go about working against the objectives of this uh, of this charter in their dealings with other countries so no and this on the one hand seems to be something that would say uh, limit the sovereignty of member countries but on the other hand again it, it kind of is based in established understood international law uh, especially in the post-world war one world of uh, this understanding that you don't enter into secret agreements uh, with other countries, secret treaties specifically. This is a treaty, this is a military alliance, this is your top priority. You don't go about uh, forming secret alliances on the side or on the sly, you know, secret uh, treaties. Um, because one of the big lessons from World War One is this is one of the contributing factors to World War One is that you had a bunch of secret alliances and treaties that snapped into place and became visible at the point of war and expanded the war exponentially. And so Article 8 seeks to try to circumvent that or at least prevent that. Article 9, the parties hereby establish a council on which each of them shall be represented to consider matters concerning the implementation of this treaty. The council shall be so organized as to be able to meet promptly at any time. The council shall set up such subsidiary bodies as be necessary. In particular, it shall establish immediately a defense committee, which shall recommend measures for the implementation of Articles 3 and 5. So in other words, Articles one through eight are all about, here's who the members are, here's what the members agree to do, here's what we understand as common terminology and the definitions of those terms. Uh, article nine is basically like, okay, how do we implement this? Here's how we're gonna do it. We're gonna have a committee that's made up of all member countries and we're gonna have a subcommittee that is going to specifically uh, oversee uh, articles three and five uh, to, the maintenance and development of collective capacity to resist attack and evaluating whether or not an attack uh, satisfies the conditions of Article 5. And this might be a good place to now talk about the use of NATO in Afghanistan. So Afghanistan as a war has become America's longest war since America uh, went in there to defeat uh, both the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in 2001. Uh, and this year, uh, the Biden administration announced that it would be withdrawing all troops from Afghanistan. That withdrawal has already largely taken place or is in the, and is in the midst of finishing up. But one of the major things, uh, and this might surprise a lot of people, is that um, is that in, on September 11th, 2001, and the attacks that occurred there on the United States, uh, these were considered sufficiently sufficient uh, conditions to invoke Article 5. This was considered an armed attack that threatened the, uh, the political security uh, and the territorial integrity of the United States. Um, and so that, at least that's how it was understood. And so Article 5 was invoked, 
and NATO uh, went on its first Article 5 military uh, mission, you might say. Now, that's not to say NATO wasn't doing anything. Uh, NATO had been utilized, NATO forces had been utilized in the 1990s uh, to secure uh, certain uh, countries and uh, member countries, or at least help secure borders or uh, to support UN uh, peacekeeping missions, particularly in the Balkans. So it's not to say NATO has not been involved uh, militarily in different uh, places of the world since its founding. But this was the first time Article 5 was invoked, uh, which you know lays certain requirements on countries, and Afghanistan was one of them. And what's interesting and unique about Afghanistan is that uh, if you go back up to uh, Article 6, uh, an armed attack uh, and its definition is something that happens within the attack of the, within the North Atlantic area. So the September 11th at attacks happened in the United States. So it satisfied that it satisfied that condition, which is why they were able to say, like, yeah, this satisfies Article 5. But one of the significant things was is uh, Afghanistan, where the fighting occurred, happened pretty far away from the geographical region that NATO was concerned about. Uh, and this was part of the debate was, okay, we can invoke Article 5 as an armed attack, but the theater of operations is going to be Afghanistan, which is not uh, necessarily the geographical region that NATO concerns itself with as maintaining security. And this spoke to the uniqueness of the threat of global terror networks. Uh, networks of uh, terrorists like Al-Qaeda was building and ISIS was later to expand upon that can exist or be located or headquartered in one country, but then can carry out attacks in uh, many other places uh, far removed from their home bases. And so, it, you know, part of the big piece of the discussion surrounding uh, NATO's mission in Afghanistan was this recognition that um, that war in the 21st century is not necessarily going to be just a contest between countries over land space, that it will actually be a more fluid uh, operational theater. And so there was a big question over whether, uh, over how NATO would, you know, kind of expand its theater of operation without getting sucked into mission creep. That the security, you know, how do you maintain the security, the geographical security of member countries at the same time that you're prosecuting this fight? well outside its borders. I'm not sure if we've arrived at satisfactory answers for that question, but that's been part of the discussion and debate. Uh, that the September 11th attacks were, were clearly you know, hitting the criteria necessary for invoking Article 5 was beyond debate uh, for most member NATO member countries. Uh, but then what do you do about that? How do you respond? How do you work through that? Uh, that was... You know, that was the responsibility of this council and the subcommittee of defense, uh, the defense committee uh, outlined in Article 9. That's what they've been wrestling with ever since. Article 10, the parties may, by unanimous agreement, invite any other European state in a position to further the principles of this treaty and to contribute to the security of the North Atlantic area to accede to this treaty. Any state so invited may become a party to that treaty by depositing its instrument of accession to uh, with the government of the United States of America. The government of the United States of America will inform each of the parties of the deposit of each such instrument of accession. So this does two things. One, it kind of states uh, the process for becoming a new member. It's like, hey, you first have to be invited, uh, and then you have to submit uh, a certain uh, articles or instrument of accession, which would be a series of documents. But you would submit them to the United States of 
of America. And so this kind of establishes pretty early on that America is leading this project, that America is kind of the guarantor of this project, uh, not just militarily, but also, as it were, um, uh, administratively as well. And this will be a good point to come back to the question that I raised earlier about who gets to be members and you know what is the qualifications for membership. And that question of, well, what do you do when someone fails to meet those qualifications and they're already a member. Here we have the standards for inviting a country to be a member. What do you do to exit a member? Uh, if the member, especially if the member isn't choosing to exit themselves, uh, what do you do? And because that's one of the major sticking points right now in relations with Turkey. Uh, Turkey under uh, President Erdogan has uh, done very little to promote democracy, very little to promote rule of law, very little to promote individual liberty by any objective measure. And so um, Turkey remaining a member of NATO uh, continues uh, to uh, bedevil the minds of purists who look at Turkey and say they certainly uh, do not show themselves to be um, uh, good faith members of the organization. But then the question becomes, what do you do to kick them out? And then, of course, their strategic, uh, their strategic position uh, on the Black Sea as a, as a block and buffer to Russian expansion into the Mediterranean makes it even more difficult to uh, show them the exits. We'll talk a little bit more about this later on, but uh, I should probably just say right now that while the invitation, application, membership process is fairly clear in this charter, the exit process is not. In fact, there has never been a forcible uh, removal of membership in the history of NATO. Lots of expansion of membership. Article 11, this treaty shall be ratified and its provisions carried out by the parties in accordance with their respective constitutional processes. So you, you can sign on to the treaty, but you still need to go get it approved in your democracy-loving home country. Uh, the instruments of ratification shall be deposited as soon as possible with the government of the United States of America, which will notify all the other signatories of each deposit. The treaty shall enter into force between the states which have ratified it as soon as the ratification of the majority of the signatories, including the ratifications of Belgium, Canada, France, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, the United Kingdom, and the United States, have been deposited and shall come into effect with the respect to other states on the date of the deposit of their ratifications. And so there you kind of see a list of the original uh, signatories, uh, Belgium, Canada, France, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Article 12. After the treaty has been enforced for 10 years or at any time thereafter, the parties shall, if any of them so requests, consult together for the purpose of reviewing the treaty, having regard for the factors then affecting peace and security in the North Atlantic area, including the development of universal as well as regional arrangements under the Charter of the United Nations for the maintenance of international peace and security. So here's an interesting thing is even though that early on there's this uh, discussion about, okay, what is the focus? It's very focused early on in the Charter on the North Atlantic area, America, Canada, and Western Europe. Very focused. And if you look at the list of original uh, signatories in the article above, you see that, yeah, this is a very, this is an operation, alliance, narrow in scope, narrow in theater of operation. But because they recognize that they can and probably will expand the alliance, they have Article 12 to say like, okay, you know, as the alliance expands, we're going to have to review this treaty regularly to not just 
review who our members are, but even just review, okay, great members comes great responsibility, you might say. Uh, with more members comes greater responsibilities. Uh, and those responsibilities can easily take us outside our theater operations, as Afghanistan did. There's this space made in Article 12 for an ongoing discussion and review of what it means to be a member of NATO what the missions of NATO are, what NATO is trying to accomplish in the world. And it's kind of interesting how they move from collective uh, security and defense in the home region of North Atlantic area to international peace and security, so a much broader term. So they, there's clearly a view that you know our mission can grow global in scope. Um, they seem to stop short of saying our membership can be, but certainly the mission can go global in scope. And so there's this recognition that uh, the security challenges uh, will change as time goes on, as they did uh, with terrorism. Article 13, after the treaty has been enforced for 20 years, so Article 12 was about what happens after 10 years, here's like, hey, after 20 years, any party may cease to be a party one year after its notice of denunciation has been given to the government of the United States of America, which will inform the governments of the other parties of the deposit of each notice of denunciation. So basically for the original signatories of this treaty, they kind of committed to being members for 20 years, which was a huge commitment. So that's 1949 to 1969, right? That's what they were committing to. Like we're gonna form this alliance for 20 years. After that, open exit, but you first have to say, we no longer want to be part of NATO. You have to deposit a notice of denunciation. This is kind of fun because uh, I like to play Sid Meier's Civilizations game, and that's something that always happens in relationships with uh, other countries, other players in the game, is they'll denounce you, and it'll like, ruin your relationships for several terms. So that's kind of fun. Uh, but in this case, this is like an official denunciation. They're just saying, hey, we don't, we don't uh, want to be a member of NATO anymore. And then basically you have one year to exit. Uh, the the official withdrawal or you're no longer a membership you know ends in a in a year and going back to the earlier point about Turkey and what do you do about Turkey how do you get rid of a, an actor who is clearly no longer democratic clearly no longer upholding the values of NATO uh, and, and in some cases even you know hammering out security arrangements with your uh, rival Russia um, well, Article 13 doesn't really give us much guidance on that. It's really the only language you have in the charter about uh, exiting the treaty. There is no, there is literally no language on what should the uh, defense committee or what should the council do uh, to remove a fellow member. There's just this assumption that if someone wants to stop being a member of NATO, they will do it themselves. Uh, but that is clearly not happening with Turkey. So it's kind of interesting. There's no way for a member country to be forced out of NATO, uh, at least not by the provisions of this charter. Article 14. This treaty, of which the English and French texts are equally authentic, shall be deposited in the archives of the government of the United States of America. Duly certified copies will be transmitted by the government to the governments, by that government to the governments of other signatories. The definition of the territories to which Article 5 applies, and these are all kind of like uh, appendices. Uh, the definition of the territories to which Article 5 applies uh, was revised by Article 2 of the Protocol to the North Atlantic Treaty on the, on the accession of Greece and Turkey, signed on uh, 22nd of October 1951. 
On January 16, 1963, the North Atlantic Council noted that insofar as the former Algerian departments of France were concerned, the relevant clauses of this treaty had become inapplicable as from July 3, 1962. So in other words, the you could say security umbrella of uh, NATO did not extend to French Algeria after Algerian independence. Uh, and then finally, the treaty came into force on uh, 24th August 1949 after the deposition of the ratifications of all signatory states as noted above in Article 11. So that's the NATO Charter. Like I said, not very long, uh, pretty short, and um, brevity uh, both has its blessings and its curses. Blessing in that you have a very clear statement of purpose. Uh, this is what we're about, this is what we're gonna do, and these are who our countries are, and these are the provisions we're making for revising this charter as we as we go, as we age, and as we mature. So that's good. You have a very clear focus. What's not good is uh, there are there are some wide open blind spots in terms of the administration of this alliance. Specifically, the big one being how do you forcibly remove a member who is no longer in good standing. Uh, what do you do about that? So that is not really a part of the charter language. And also, there's not really a provision here for how to update the charter. They do note that you can that they will review the treaty after 10 years. So they can be reviewing the treaty, but there's no real uh, statement about how do we update the treaty? Can we, re can we add additional articles to the treaty? Uh, nothing like that. So on the one hand, even as the charter itself allows for a certain amount of flexibility, administratively, it doesn't really describe the process by which that flexibility can be enjoyed uh, or by which the membership uh, can be uh, amended based on the performance or behavior of a member country. So it's an interesting charter, very short. Uh, it's actually uh, much shorter than other uh, national constitutions out there in the world. Uh, but it's a good starting point, uh, and it forms the basis of America's first ever um, permanent military alliance, uh, which came into force, as this note here says, in 1949. So, where can we take this conversation? What can you? Uh, what can? What other questions can you uh, can you address as you think through what it means for America to be part of NATO? Well, first off, you can ask yourself: uh, Should Russia still be NATO's chief concern? Uh, remember, historically, NATO was formed specifically uh, to check the westward expansion of, of Russia. And uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, in 1991 and with the uh, eastward march of NATO membership, uh, that objective seems largely to be achieved. Uh, I mean, Russia can do what it wants to meddle in the uh, internal affairs and of you know other European countries and even the United States with its election meddling, but at the same time, uh, it doesn't really achieve much. Uh, and from a military standpoint, from an economic standpoint, Russia is a shadow of its former self. And so uh, should NATO uh, still be focused on uh, Russia, there's, you know, Russia still isn't going anywhere. I mean, it's physically the largest power bordering Europe. So there's still a geostrategic concern. Uh, but is, is terrorism a bigger concern? Is China a bigger concern? Should they be? Uh, what would that look like for NATO to uh, develop a mission template to address those concerns? Those are all questions that are worth asking as we consider uh, where NATO goes from here. And that's a question that often gets asked as new security threats develop and emerge or as 
or as uh, Russian power fades. There's a frequent, you can often find frequent think pieces in foreign policy journalism about, you know, is NATO still relevant and, and whatnot. Uh, so if Russia shouldn't be NATO's chief concern, what or who should be the new chief concern and how might that influence the shape of the alliance in terms of missions and members? I mean, will it cease to be the North Atlantic Treaty Organization? Will it be the Atlantic Treaty Organization and take in members from Latin America and Africa? Who knows? Uh, they do work closely. They have a lot of partner countries in Africa and they work closely with the African Union. So that might be an interesting thought in terms of how the NATO might proceed uh, in the future. If you want more information on NATO and the philosophical thought that it comes out of, the kind of like political thought tradition uh, it comes out of and the world in which it operates in, you can check out uh, TimTalksPolitics.com uh, and see articles I've written there on international relations. I've linked to several of them in the show notes. Uh, you can also get uh, the NATO charter itself uh, by going to NATO's website. And NATO also has a lot of cool resources detailing uh, the different committees and subcommittees and what they do and their missions and who their partners are. So if you just want more detail on NATO as an organization, go check out their website. Uh, and then if you want to see some of my uh, additional podcasts that I've made on America and Russia relations or uh, how America operates in the international space, you can view uh, I'll link to several podcasts on the show notes as well, but specifically I'd recommend episodes 7, 14, and 17. Uh, those are episodes where I've specifically looked at America's diplomacy in the post-Cold War world, uh, how America views itself in, in the strategic space after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then episode 17 of the Tim Talks Politics podcast, I talked about U.S.-Russia relations. So you can uh, check those out there. Today's last word uh, comes from our very own President Joe Biden. Only this quote comes from 2014 when he was Vice President Joe Biden, and he was speaking at a NATO military exercise in Eastern Europe. And he said this, America's commitment to collective defense under Article 5 of NATO is a sacred obligation in our view, a sacred obligation not just for now, but for all time. And I'll see you next time on the Tim Talks Politics Podcast. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Tim Talks Politics Podcast. Thank you so much for joining the conversation whenever and wherever you're listening from. If you're in a generous mood, I'd love it if you would leave a review of the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps to improve the show and increase its visibility in the marketplace of ideas. And please be sure to check out the show notes at timtalkspolitics.com where you can find additional content and subscribe to my newsletter, The Weekly Brief. This is Tim Malosh. Until next time, have a great week, and I will see you again on the Tim Talks Politics Podcast.